Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses uh, 3 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. And as we prepare to read the text, let us come before the Lord and pray that He would bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, we thank You so much again for Your endless grace. So much grace, Lord, that we just get overwhelmed by it and we almost lose sight of the fact that it is grace. We woke up this morning by your hand. The next breath we take, it is by your will. The food that we have to eat, the clothes that we wear, the fact that we sit in a building in the shade and it's cooled off by a cooler is all by your grace. The fact that our family members are alive and well, the fact that we live still right now, even now in this moment, live in a country where we are free is by your grace. But even more than that, the grace that you've given us to have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we know that your word is sufficient and inspired and authoritative and inerrant and that it is given to us to know you better, Lord. And that itself is another grace. And so, Father, we ask that you would use your word to plant the the seed in our hearts, that it would bear fruit in our lives, and that you would continually use it to shape us and change us and transform us more and more into the image of your glorious Son, and that you would create in us and make us the church that you were calling us to be. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. The late Jerry Bridges once wrote, The contented person experiences the sufficiency of God's provision for his needs and the sufficiency of God's grace for his circumstances. 
He believes God will indeed meet all of his material needs and that he will work in all his circumstances for his good. That is why Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. The godly person has found what the greedy or envious or discontented person always searches for but never finds. He has found satisfaction and rest in his soul. I know that I've done this a number of times and I probably did a couple more times before we're done here. But if I can turn you back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'd like to read once again verses 14 through 15. It's the context, I think, by which we need to to examine the Scriptures. And it reads this way. It says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And as we've said throughout this entire series, that it's evident that the church belongs to God. It is His church. It is His family made up of His people. And as such, it is to be and it is to do what God has commanded for it to be and to do in His Word. And one of the functions of the church, one of the functions that the church serves is not only to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a perishing world, but it is also to protect the foundational doctrines of the faith the foundational doctrines on which we build the church. Because again, as we've talked about many times, and you will hear me say many more times before I leave this pulpit and go meet Jesus, is that theology matters. Because what you believe about God and who He is matters. Because it determines your entire worldview. What you believe about God determines how you see the entire world and everything else around you. And that ultimately determines how you live your life. You see, what you believe about God will determine what you believe about you and your purpose for existing. And you, what you believe about you and your purpose for existing will determine what you think your relationship for God is for. And there are only two places we can really land with this question. And that is, number one, is your relationship with God about you or is your relationship with God Him? These are the only two choices, and I realize that there are some people who don't like that question posed that way. They struggle with the idea that those are the only two choices, but that's really what it comes down to. Either your relationship with God is about Him, or it's about you. And brothers and sisters, I submit to you the difference between false teaching and true teaching comes down to that one question. Is it about you, or is it about Him? The difference between a false teacher and a true teacher is the same. Is he leading you to believe that your relationship with God and all that the Bible teaches about, is it about you or is it about him? This is the difference between orthodox, this is the difference between the other or different doctrines that Paul keeps referring to or the true orthodox doctrines that have been handed down to us throughout the centuries from the apostles on in the scriptures. Do they build in you? Do the doctrines build in you an understanding that your life and your desires and the purpose of your life are all about you? Or do they teach you that they are all about God? Suffice to ask, 
do you have a man-centered theology or a God-centered theology? Is the center of your understanding of God and His purposes for mankind about men, or is it ultimately about God and His glory? And this right here, brothers and sisters, is the point of this text. It might not be apparent initially, but that's the point of this text here. What do you think your relationship for God, with God is for? Is it for you or is it for Him? That is the central focus of this text. Now, I realize that there's a lot actually to unpack in this text, and I could probably spend you know, a whole six-week sermon series just on these verses. Uh, in fact, in this text, we will encounter the nature of false teachers as we see that they're arrogant and conceited and greedy. And I also realize that in this text, it talks about one of the most popular to topics in the world, which is money. And in fact, in this text is a verse that is one of the most misquoted and misunderstood in the entire Bible. It's the text where people think that it says that the love of money is the root of all evil. I mean, where, 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 where money is the root of all evil. And so it is, it is true that these texts, the text deals with these things, and we will certainly touch on these things. But at the center of this text is the truth, is really the truth about where your heart is. Is your heart set on you and your own life and your own desires and your own self-sufficiency? Or is your heart set on God and your hope in Him? In fact, I think the key verse of this entire text is probably the one that's most overlooked, and that's verse number 6. Verse 6 is the key verse of this entire section here. Paul says very subtly but very clearly but godliness with contentment is great gain. This right here is Paul's overarching point. This right here is the overarching point of the Christian life, by the way. Because this text answers the question, what is the purpose of your life? The thing that we need to see here is that the word that Paul uses here for contentment doesn't mean simply what the English word that we use here means. When we think of contentment, we think of just simply being satisfied just being happy. We think of being pleasant. And yes, it does mean those things. Right? But the Greek word that's used here is made up of two different words. It is auto or self, and the other one is archaeo or sufficient. And so literally the, the word that we translate as contentment literally means self-sufficient or self-sufficiency. That's what it means. And this word was used by the Stoic philosophers in Paul's time to convey an idea that a person can become self-sufficient and self-content to the point that they become unflappable and unmovable and unshakable in their lives emotionally, no matter what happens to them, no matter what their circumstances are, that somehow, someway, people can be self-sufficient enough that their lives will not be moved, that they can become self-sufficient, that they cannot be deterred. And Paul's leveraging this idea, and he will position us in this text to ask the question, then, what is the source of our contentment? What is the source of our self-sufficiency? Is it God himself, or is it the gifts that God bestows upon us? Is, it, is our contentment in God himself, or is our contentment in the things that God gives us, like material possessions? Because also notice the word gain is in this text here. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
And the word, again, is from the Greek word porismos. And it can be defined as the source of gain or livelihood or even profit. And Paul helps us to understand how one group of people sees godliness as a means to an end, which is material gain. That godliness or living a life of committed to God is a means to another end. That the, that the end is not God himself. But on the other hand, there are those people who see godliness not only as the mean, but also the ends itself. That living a godly life and living for God is the point. Because God himself is the end. God himself is the purpose of our life. And so the central point of this text is, what do you think your relationship with God is for? It is for you. Is it for you and material gain? Is it for your personal happiness? Or is it for God and his glory? This is the point of the entire text. And so the context and so in that context, let's take a moment and unpack this. 1 Timothy chapter, three, chapter 6, verse 3, Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, and we need to realize up front, when Paul says different doctrine, he means different than what the apostles are teaching. He doesn't mean different like there's another doctrine besides the ones that he teaches that, that are okay. What he's saying is, is that it's a false doctrine. In fact, he refers to to that different or false throughout his other, other letters. Right? Different or other doctrines by nature are false doctrines. And that means those who teach different doctrines then are by implication are what? False teachers. That's what Paul's referring to, by the way. He's referring to when he says those, he's referring to false teachers. And that stands the reason because the huge part of this letter, as we know, has been dealing with the false teachings that had happened, been happening in the Ephesian church and, and Timothy having to discipline the false teachers. If you remember, Timothy was left in, in Ephesus to straighten out the church that slipped off of its theological foundation because false teachers took over leadership in the church and began to lead the church astray through false teaching. And he told Timothy immediately to put an end to the false teaching and to deal with those who were teaching those things. And so... Paul at this point begins to describe those who are false teachers. And he outlines their character and he outlines the character of their false teaching and he outlines the results of their false teaching. In fact, notice it says that false teachers and their teachings do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Now this is, this is not the main point of this text, but it's worth spending a little bit of time on. And the characteristics of false teachers and their teachings, as Paul describes here, really has three dimensions. Number one, he says, it does not agree with or literally draw near sound words. And, and the word that's used here in the Greek for word conveys the idea of divine words, divine instruction. And the word for sound simply means healthy or pure or uncorrupted and what Paul is conveying here is that false teachers do not agree with or draw near to the uncorrupted, pure words of God. I mean, they may quote scriptures, but they don't use them properly because they don't understand them, which is what Paul's going to say in verse number four. He says they don't understand anything. And they certainly don't teach sound doctrines contained in the words. They, they teach different or other doctrines, false doctrines, because they do not agree with the actual sound words of God. 
Number two, false teachers in what they teach do not agree with the doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the English rendered here of our Lord Jesus Christ is actually better translated as concerning our Lord Jesus Christ or about our Lord Jesus Christ. It should read this way. False teachers do not agree with the sound words concerning or about our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means false teachers simply just don't believe the doctrines about Jesus and the nature of who He is and His gospel. Which I think is what we know. The false teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus is not God. It's a foundational doctrine. False teachings of the LDS Church is that Jesus was once time a man who worked his way to become a God, and he is a God separate from God the Father. The false teaching of the progressive Christianity is that Christ's death on the cross was not really a substitutionary atonement. It's a symbol rather than an actual reality. The false teaching of Gnosticism is that Christ's resurrection was spiritual and not physical. The false teaching of the prosperity gospel is that Christ died and rose again so that you can be healthy, wealthy, and happy. The false teaching of easy believism is if you will just simply just invite Jesus into your hearts, that you are saved no matter what actually happens in your life. And that even if you live like the demon the rest of your life, just because you, you prayed some prayer, somehow you are saved. False teachers do not agree with the true teachings about who Christ is, what He has done, why He has came, why He came, and how we have faith in Him. Which means false teachers and false teachings cannot lead to life. And the third thing is that false teachers and their teachings do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching or the doctrines that accord with godliness. You see, true doctrine expresses the truth about who God is, who we are in light of who God is. And it shapes our worldview. And that, in turn, shapes our lives. And as we have talked about before, those who are in Christ will grow in godliness. Not because they're trying to save themselves through their action, because it's by the work of the Holy Spirit in us that produces that fruit Those who are in Christ will grow towards godliness. They will grow in God-likeness. And they will begin to reflect the character and the nature of God in in their lives simply through the obedience to the Word. And again, it's not obedience that we pursue to make ourselves saved. It's obedience that's a byproduct of the Holy Spirit working in us. And godliness means living a life that's devoted to God, as we have talked about before a life that's centered on God, a life that's lived for Him. But false teachers don't want to live this way. They don't agree with the doctrines that would lead them to live in godliness or live lives focused on Christ and devoted to Him in His glory. Why won't they live this way? Well, Paul answers that in verse 4. He says, these false teacher, for the false teacher is puffed up and conceited and understands nothing. Now, as I just mentioned those who are false teachers may use the Word of God to further their agenda. We've seen that before. Right? But they don't truly understand it. I mean, they may read it. Some even may even memorize it and even quote it, but they don't understand the Word of God because they are unregenerate. They are not born again. A person cannot truly understand the Word of God if they are not born again of the Holy Spirit and then led in their understanding of the uh, the text by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural work of God for us to truly understand the gospel and God's word. And these men do not possess that understanding. 
But the important thing that we need to see here is not only did they not understand the word of God, but it says that they are puffed up with conceit. Paul says they are conceited. Now this phrase, puffed up with conceit, is actually from simply one Greek word that conveys the idea of arrogance. False teachers who reject sound theology are arrogant and prideful and conceited. That is what Paul is saying. Now, what does this mean to be conceited? It means to be self-focused. That's the heart of being conceited, right? It is to be self-centered because conceited people are self-centered by nature. And so naturally their theology and their teachings about God are going to be oriented around what? Themselves. It's around self. It's about them. Their relationship with God is about them. Their purpose for their lives is about them. These false teachers are conceited. And as Paul says, the outworking of this conceit is is he, the false teacher, has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. False teachers like to fight and argue and quarrel. They crave controversy. They seek to appear countercultural and even provocative at times. False teachers like to stand in contrast to the orthodox teachings of the church, and they love to say things that are controversial, like preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. As if someone living a righteous life can lead anyone else to Jesus. It just doesn't happen. As if somebody can actually hear the gospel without actually hearing the words of the gospel. But those are little pithy statements that people like to say. That sound may be true because it, it feels good, but it's not true. Or how about this? Jesus never once said anything about homosexuality in the New Testament. As if Jesus' discussion of marriage being between a man and a woman isn't sufficient enough for us. Or how about the fact that Jesus, being God in the flesh, is the author of all of the scriptures, the Old and New Testament, including the words of Paul in the New Testament? Or how about if you want to make that argument, let's just go, let's just keep that same energy and say, well, why didn't Jesus say anything about bestiality, incest, or pedophilia? By that same logic, those things should be okay too then. Or how about the recent teaching of a woman preacher? Uh, in a liberal mainline denomination who said that the Great Commission is not part of the gospel, but the Great Commission is actually rooted in white supremacy. I'm not making this up. I mean, this is real stuff. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy. And the result is that that, that happens in the church is it produces envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction in the church. Again, uh, this lady named Jory, uh, Jory Micah of Marsill Church continues, continually refers to the Holy Spirit as she rather than he in spite of what, what the scriptures clearly say. And believe me, she's all over Twitter and loves all the attention, even the negative stuff. People describe these false teachers, I mean, Paul describes these false teachers as people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They are depraved in their minds because their minds are still corrupted by sin. They have not been regenerate. Their hearts are still hard as stone. They have not been born again, and as such, they cannot know the truth. But then Paul gets to the point, the point where we need to get to. He says that false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. This right here is the central issue that Paul's getting to right here. They imagine that godliness, a life lived in service to God, a life lived towards God is a means of gain. 
They see following God and professing faith in Him and having a relationship with Him, attempting to live in obedience to the law of God as a means to gain something else. This right here is the dividing line between false teachers and true teachers. Because false teachers and true teachers, or between false doctrine and true doctrine, between false converts and true believers, there are people who believe that godliness, a life devoted to God, a life that seeks to live out obedience to His command, there are those who see this not as an end itself, but a means to something else. Be it material gain, be it living your best life now, be it having a pain-free, problem-free life, be it marrying the person of your dreams, whatever it is, false teachers and false believers, for, for that matter, see their relationship with God and all that is involved in that as a means of gaining something else. For them, their religion, their faith, their devotion to God is simply, again, a means to another end. You see, that's what, what, what they want is what God can give them rather than God himself. You see, God is an instrument to help them get what they really want, which is something other than God himself. You see, what they want are the gifts rather than the giver of those gifts. They want the money, they want the freedom, they want the luxury, they want the relationships, they want the popularity, they want the political power, they want that feeling of security in a world that will never allow you to be secure, by the way. And for them, God simply is just a means for them to reach up to those things. This right here is what's wrong with the world, by the way. This right here is what's wrong with the American church, the dominant Religion in America today, in, the, in American evangelicalism, is moralistic therapeutic deism. It's something we've talked about before. That faith in Christ is, is about becoming a better person. That's moralism, right? And that, that, and, and that's, that God is there to, to help you get better and feel better. That's the therapeutic part of it. And then God is there as a butler in the sky to, to give you the things that you need or to help you in your time of need. Otherwise, he really doesn't exist. That's deism. By the way, that is the dominant faith in America. It is ultimately self-centeredness. It's about man rather than God. Again, this is why I began with and continue to talk about why theology matters. Because if God simply is this mysterious deity to help you get what you want in your life, that's just simply how you're going to live. As if godliness is a means of gain. That your relationship with God is about what you can get out of Him. You see, when God is the means to an end rather than an end itself, then your pursuit will always be other things rather than Him. But on the other hand, if you see God as the holy, righteous just creator of all things and that he created you not only to reflect him but he created you for a relationship with him for his own glory you will see that god is not the means to an end but that god is the end itself and if you see that your relationship with god was destroyed by sin and that sin has consigned you to hell and there's nothing you can do on your own to fix it, 
And then you can see that God, who owes you nothing but his justice and wrath and his mercy, made a way for you to be restored to him in that relationship that you were created for through Christ's finished work on the cross. You will see that God is, again, not a means to an end, but the end itself. This is why our catechism so clearly exclaims in question two, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The purpose of all of mankind is to glorify God and to enjoy him, him forever. To enjoy him above all other things forever. That is our purpose. That's your purpose. That is my purpose. It's the purpose of the church today to glorify God who is worthy of all of our devotion and to enjoy Him because He is not a means to an end, but the end itself. He is the purpose. He is not part of your life. He is your life. He is not a way to joy. He is your joy. He is not a way to treasure. He is the treasure. All those other things that we have in life, money, food, clothing, friends, all those other things are but gracious gifts that He lavishes upon us because He bestows those things on us, but He owes us nothing. He gives it all by His grace, the gift of life that you have, the gift of your family and your friends, the taste of food. And believe me, if there's something I really appreciate, it's that. It's the warmth of the sun. It's the fact that we have transportation to take us two and a half hours so our boys can play a football game. He provides all of these things, all of our needs, and even more. All that we have, not of it do we deserve, but all that we have is graciously lavished upon us by Him. These things are not the gain. Those things are the frosting. Those things are the extras. He is the gain. He is the center, which is what Paul says next. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness living a godly life, a life devoted to God with Him at the center, with contentment is great gain. Now, what what we need to remember is that this contentment means self-sufficiency. And the thing that we need to understand in this world, this this world defines self-sufficiency in external materialistic terms. When you ask somebody, what does it mean to be self-sufficient? That's where they're going to begin, something external. A person who is considered self-sufficient has enough money in the bank to survive an economic storm. Somebody who who is self-sufficient is somebody who's got enough retirement saved up to get them through the ups and downs of life. A person who's self-sufficient has has friends in high places to help them kind of smooth out their up spots. A self-sufficient person has plenty of resources to endure differing trials is what the world will define as self-sufficient. That is why why they are supposedly unflappable and unmovable. That is how the world sees contentment and self-sufficiency. That's why people ultimately will pursue riches. Why do people pursue riches? Really, everybody knows the truth, right? Everybody knows. Everybody knows the the old saying, money cannot buy happiness. But I sure like to try, right? Isn't that the attitude? 
People pursue riches and political power and fame and relationships because they think that somehow, someway, there is security in there for them. That is their way to self-sufficiency. But Paul uses this word in a different context because for Christians, our contentment doesn't come from external material things. It comes from Christ who lives in us. You see, Christ is not, you see, the Christian is not self-sufficient because of what he has materially. A Christian is self-sufficient because of what he possesses spiritually, and that is Christ. That's why Christians can be unflappable and unmovable and unshakable. Even the Christians in Afghanistan who are being persecuted in this moment right now. Because his self-sufficiency isn't really self-sufficiency. It's Christ's sufficiency. Christ is the one who is sufficient. This is why Paul can say things like, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. How about Paul saying in Hebrews 13, 5, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or how about Romans chapter 8, verse, beginning in verse 35, he says, who shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded sheep as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is great gain in godliness and contentment in Christ because all of our hope is set on Him. He is the center of our life. He is the purpose of our life. And notice what Paul says in verse 7. For, that word for means because. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Let that truth sink in for a moment. If there's a truth that will absolutely destroy your notion that we can have self-sufficiency on our own, it's got to be this. It has to be this truth right here that we have brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Or as Job said, naked you came in and naked you're going to go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, this tells us several important things about who we are. Number one, it tells us that we are temporal. That is a slide, by the way. It tells us that we are temporal. The truth is we came into being at a point in time and we're leaving this world at a point in time. And guess what? Not any of us know how those times work themselves out except God himself. We had a beginning and we will have an end here on earth. This is the place where we are completely unlike God. The word holy, when we say holy, 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 as you walked in the door, you'll see the plaque that our brother Robert made for us put up there. You'll see holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
That word holy means God is completely and far and away different than we can, than we can imagine, right? And this is one of those areas where it's a striking contrast between us and God. We are temporal. We have a beginning and an end, and God does not. He is eternal. And that right here ought to destroy any notion that we might have of any kind of self-sufficiency in ourselves, right? That should destroy whatever notion we have for purpose in anything else. That somehow, some way that you're going to find happiness outside of God in the 80 plus years that you might have to live here rather than glorifying God. You and I are not eternal, we are temporal. Number two, this also tells us very clearly, contrary to all the contracts in the world, contrary to popular opinion, contrary to even the language we use, you don't own anything. It all belongs to God. It was His when He created it, and He created it a long time before you got here. Well, he didn't create the things that I have. Yeah. I mean, he, maybe not in the form that you use them, but it was here. It was all here. All the materials were here. If you think that you, you, know, you can have something unique in your own, then start with your own dirt, right? Start with your own technology, because even technology itself existed because God created it. It all belongs to him. And guess what? You're going to leave it all behind. Every bit of it. You will not take a penny with you. You will not take a stitch of clothing with you. In fact, you won't even get to take your body with you. The body that you are identified with, the body that you firmly believe that is yours, you won't take it with you. Your body will be left behind, rotting in the ground. The only way that you get that body back is for Christ to return during the resurrection when he gives you your glorified body. That's the only way. And even then, it's going to be a gift. It's not something that you got on your own. You really don't own anything. And all you have is what God has graciously entrusted to you. Even those who don't believe in him, even those who will live their lives spitting in the face of Christ and who will reject the gospel and who walk themselves right into hell, all they have is what God has graciously given them. And guess what? They'll give it all back when they die too. Which means whatever you may gain this life cannot possibly be your hope. It's pointless if it is, because it doesn't belong to you. Number three, a thing it tells us is it tells us really clearly that you're not in control. Right? You came into this world by circumstances beyond your own control. I would even say that you came in this world against your own will and your own consent. You didn't have a choice in the matter. It was all by God's will and His consent. And guess what? You're going to go out the same way. And whatever you may accumulate during your lifetime here, you do not really have as much control over as you think that you have. Right? And you certainly don't have any control when it's gone. Oh yeah, I have a will. That doesn't matter as we know. As we've seen people go to court and tear that stuff to shreds. And guess what? The more stuff you accumulate, the more stuff it is that you possess, that you don't even really have any control over because guess what? You're still not sovereign. You're not the one who's sovereign in the universe. God is. Because as we can see, as we've seen with what's happening, wealth can be destroyed like that. 
a little economic blip and then billions of dollars disappear off the face of the earth. Right? People right now are going bankrupt while, some, while other people are becoming rich. Friendships, as you know, lifelong friendships can be destroyed and lost in an instant. Loved ones, as we know, as we've seen, we've all experienced the heartbreak of having a loved one taken from us in a blink of an eye. In fact, if you want to know just how much, how little you have control over, again, go back to Job. That's why we sang, blessed be the name of the Lord. That is from the book of Job. So really, you are temporal, you don't own anything, and you're not even in control of the things that you do think that you have. And so to live for anything else but God is foolishness. Because if God is, the only, is only a means to an end, whatever you reach for, even if you get it all, even if you, 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 you fulfill all of your dreams, all of it will fade away one day like the mist in the early sun. God is not a means to an end. He is the end and purpose of your life. In fact, look what Paul says next. He says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Paul is in essence saying that if you have your basic needs met, if we have our basic needs met and we have Christ, we can be unmovable and self-sufficient. Why? Because our hope isn't in stuff. Our hope isn't in this world. Our hope isn't in the things that are made by human hands. Our hope is in Christ. He and He alone is our sufficiency. The thing that we need to realize and the thing that we need to understand is that if you work hard and you gain all the material possessions you could ever want, and have all the fame and friends that you could ever hope to, to have and, and live all the best experiences in the end, you will have what? Nothing. Because you're temporal. And you don't own anything, and you're not even in control. But if you have Christ, you have more than you will ever need. Because you have in Christ Everything. You have your sins forgiven forever, past, present, and future. You have a righteousness, a per perfect righteousness that's not your own, a righteousness that covers you so you can have a relationship with the Father. You have an adoption into the family of God. And you have a life, a forever life, and an inheritance that can never be taken from you. In Christ, you have everything. Those who are in Christ are the ones who have it all. That's why we would say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And when their basic needs are met, when who is in Christ, when their basic needs are met, they're absolutely immovable because they are truly the ones self-sufficient. But Paul says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And I need you to hear me on this because this is right here is sometimes where I think people go off the rails a little bit. Nowhere in the Bible does it say it's a sin to have money. Nowhere in the Bible does it say it's a sin to be rich. It doesn't say that. I want you to hear me. Paul is not saying that we shouldn't save money or invest money for the future. 
He's not saying that we shouldn't save up for retirement. I think it's wise for people to do things like that. In fact, I think it's wise for us to, to, to not be a burden on other people. In fact, we just talked about that when it talked about widows, that there's an obligation that people have to be able to, to pay their own way and, to take the, and take care of themselves and not be a burden to the church. He's not saying that there isn't anything, that there's anything wrong with being rich in the first place. In fact, again, it does not say that money itself is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is the root of all, is, is all kinds of evils. Notice the language, though. He says those who desire to be rich, the love of money, this craving, desire, love, craving. What do these verbs tell us? How do these, what are these, how these verbs point us? What direction they point us to? They tell us that there are people who have their hearts fixed on something. They have their hearts fixed on an object of their desire. It's an object of their love. It is an object of their craving. What is, is it they desire? What is it they love? What is it that, that these people crave? Well, it's money. It's wealth. It's material possessions. You see, Paul's not talking about wealth itself. He's talking about people who have their hearts set on wealth and material things. You see, it's not about the fact that they're working towards that. It's where their heart is. Their hearts are set on wealth. That is their true desire. That is where their hope is. That's where they find their security. And because of that, for them, God simply is only a means to an end. They worship God and perform religious actions and they seek to live a godly life in order to gain something else that they truly desire. You see, the point that Paul is making here is there are people who claim to follow Christ and even people who are in the ministry whose true desires and true love is not God himself. But again, the gifts that God gives. They desire and love the gifts over the giver of the gifts. For them, simply, God is a tool to be used. God is just a, a relationship to be leveraged. He's simply a stepping stone from which they can actually reach up and grab what they truly desire. Material gain. They see godliness, a godlike life of devotion. But the purpose of that is simply as a means to grab hold of something other than God. But notice where this kind of idolatry leads to. And believe me, it is idolatry. I want you to hear me on this. Anything that you love more than you love God is idolatry. By its very definition, by its very nature. Anything you desire more than God is what you actually truly worship. And this idolatry ultimately leads not to joy that people hope that it would lead to, or the satisfaction or the self-sufficiency that they're hoping for, but it ultimately leads to pain and leads to death. Paul says that those who desire to be rich, those who love, whose love is wealth, fall into temptation and into a snare, and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is a sobering, sobering warning. If a person's heart is set on material gain, if a person's heart is set on temporal happiness, if a person's heart is set on fame and power, they will ultimately fall into temptation and they will, in the process, violate the law of God in some way. 
They will step on people. They will use others. They will hurt others. They will profane the name of God. And ultimately, they will give their heart to what they desire rather than God himself. And they will fall into ruin and destruction. And believe me, the greatest ruin, the greatest possible destruction is the destruction of hell. Those who desire for material things, who supplant their desire for God, will not see the kingdom of God. Notice what Paul says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Again, money is not the root of evil. The love of, the lust of that, the desire for that above God. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves in many pangs. Now, Paul is not saying that true Christians can wander away from their saving faith. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is those whose hearts that are set on material things, rather than God himself, prove themselves to be people who are not really of the faith. And what they will do is wander away from the Christian faith. They will wander away from the orthodox teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying that they're going to leave the church. He's saying is that he, they're going to leave behind true Christianity in favor of something else. They will wander away from the sound words of the Bible and the truth of Christ and the true doctrines of the faith. They will even continue to pretend to be Christians. And some will even continue in their work as ministers in the church. But their heart will not be set on God. They will be set on the things of this world. And they will see Christianity and their ministry and even their false faith as a means to gain what it is they truly seek. But in the end, they will find it to be vanity. As Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 8, if you will remember, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Those are pretty pointed words, right? Let him deny himself and take up his cross, an instrument of suffering, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And then here's the words that we all ought to remind ourselves. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is the heart of what we're talking about right here. For what can a man give in return for his soul? And then again in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, where the moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and neither and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is here's the key for where your treasure is there your heart will be also the eye is the lamp of the body so if your eye is healthy the whole body is full of light but the eye is bad the whole body is full of darkness if then the light is in you is darkness how great the darkness no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, and he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The idea here is you cannot have your heart set on both of those things as your self-sufficiency. You cannot make as the treasure of your life riches and God. You, they cannot simultaneously exist in your heart. Only one can occupy the throne. Now, this is the place where we need to reflect. This is the place where we need to ask ourselves where our hearts really are. 
And I think this is a healthy place for us to examine. This is, this is the question that we need to come back to. Is our greatest desire God or is it something else? Are we living truly for him and his glory? Are we really living for something else? And John Piper asked the question in a way that I think, I know for me, really caused me to, to examine my own heart. And he, asks, he says this, he says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and with all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? That's the question of our generation. That's the question that will determine where your heart really is. Because if you say yes then your heart really is not set on Christ. If heaven can be heaven without Christ, then your heart isn't set upon him. It is set on something else. And, and, and please believe me, we all have a temptation to want all those other things a lot. What I wouldn't give to see my mom again. What I wouldn't give to live in a body that isn't hurt. What I wouldn't give for there to be peace Amongst the people that I love, tired of watching them beat themselves, beat each other up and hurting each other, and right? What I wouldn't give for those things, but I want you to understand, as much as I want those things, those things are not my hope. My hope is Christ. Because if we truly understand, if we truly understand who God is, and we truly understand who we are in light of who God is, and we truly understand the gospel, and we truly understand all that God has already done for us in Christ Jesus, our greatest desire would be not anything else in this created world. Our greatest desire would be Him. That's why, again, we sing the song, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Brothers and sisters, this is the moment as a church we really need to reflect on who it is that we serve and really the depth of our understanding of who God is. Because I promise you, I promise you, if you have a sufficient, sufficiently high view of God that puts into perspective who you are and what you have done against Him, and then you can then see the overwhelming grace that God has given you, you will want nothing else but Him. Not to say that those other things aren't desires that we have, and, we, and not to say that we don't to desire good things, but those things will be pale in comparison, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. The things of earth will grow, will grow dim in the light of His glorious, uh, glorious grace. Because when you have Christ, you have everything. But if you don't have Christ, all that you can have is the very best that this life will offer you in the 80 plus years you have, and then nothing.
And as a church, the message that we take to the world is that this life is temporary. This life will come to an end. And the good things will come to an end, but also the fears and the worries that you have because of what's happening around us will come to an end as well. That those who are in Christ will one day stand in the presence of, of their maker and hear the words, good, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.